Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. He purangi tēnei, nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Paul here. As usual, a word of warning. Coming up, some strong language and descriptions of hunting and fatal accidents. It was rough, and you needed to be tough. They got you up every morning and you climbed up to the tops and back for fitness training. Sometimes you'd push yourself until you're almost flaking out from exhaustion. You were there to do it their way. It separated the wheat from the chaff. You either came up to the plate or you were down the road. We had to sort out who was going to survive and who wasn't going to survive. Dip flat was a training course, and if you wanted to be a deer colour, you had to do it. But not everyone survived it. Most of them never lasted. A lot of them got the sack because they couldn't get anything. They were hopeless. Some of the guys never lasted three or four days, and they were down the road. And it was no longer just culling. An overseas market for venison was a game-changer. Now, dead deer meant big bucks. They shot one deer during the week that almost doubled their wages. The price of venison overnight went to a dollar a pound. The manager was all on then. Every man his dog was buying aeroplanes. My mother, she wouldn't look me in the eye. She was looking at the ground and she said, you'll be dead in a week. I'm Paul Roy and this is Deer Wars. Episode 3, Shape Up or Ship Out. There's a track somewhere. There is a track apparently. There must be it there. Yeah. But I think it, it cuts across and then cuts back up here and goes... We're back with my mate Harvey Hutton, who's flying us around today. Goes on the tops. Yeah. Be nice if it wasn't so fucking cold. (laughs) (laughs) By the late 1950s, valleys like these where I'm sitting now were overrun by wannabe shooters who'd read about life as deer (laughs) colour. So, fun thing too, this is well before your time, Harvey, but like in the late 50s, after the early colours had been around and they had built the huts and stuff like that, but there were a lot of books written, like, um, there was, I don't know if you've read any of them, you know, Philip Holden's yeah. Pack and Rifle yeah. and Barry Crump. Yeah. I mean, a lot of his stuff was bullshit. Hunter Climb High, all them. Yeah, all, the, all those sort of ones. And so that really fired up people, didn't it, to come yeah. in, into, the, into the back country. Yeah. The problem was a lot of, it attracted a lot of people, but they weren't, they weren't really up to it. No. Remember, by now the Forest Service was in charge and Jock Fisher, an experienced colour and field officer, was called in to run the show. He was charged with training these eager new shooters and turning them into colours. The only problem was not many of them were up to it. The Forest Service took over. We had young men from the city wanting to be deer colours. They read a book somewhere, but they had no idea what they were wanting. 
So the Forest Service decided we can't put their men into the field because they could have an accident, they could do anything like that. That's exactly what happened. They did have men in the field and they had shooting accidents under the Forest Service, which we never had in the old internal affairs. So they decided that we needed training school to train these hunters. So <laughs> it landed on my plate from the starter. The basic training camp, known as Dip Flat, was located in the isolated Rainbow Valley in Marlborough. It had served as accommodation for workers, putting in the new power lines from the north to the South Island. And that was an ideal location, surrounded by mountains, rivers and the bush. Up in head office, this is in Wellington, they got all these applications from people who wanted a job deer culling. So they went through the list and they sent them down to Nelson and bring them into Dip Flat training camp. We had to sort out who was going to survive and who wasn't going to survive. We didn't mess around. If he couldn't do this, well, that's it, mate, you're off. One who reckons he can make the grade is Dave Richardson from Napier. You may remember him from a previous episode and his father's lack of faith in his new venture. I got accepted to go down. And I remember them taking me down to the plane. I had to get on a DC-3 in Napier. And I could hear him saying to my mother, oh, the bloody boy's mad. He'll be back in a week. And, you know, I said to myself, no bloody way. We flew to Nelson and then we were picked up and taken out to Dip Flat. Now, Dip Flat was a little camp with several army huts and there was a cookhouse and there was a lecture room. Now that I was at Dip Flat, you had to perform. You either came up to the plate or you were down the road. The 42nd intake that I was in, we went in there and the, some of the guys never lasted three or four days. And they were down the road. Another hopeful is Paddy Gordon, who showed a talent for shooting while still at school. We had a secondary school competition throughout the Commonwealth countries and uh, the four of us from our college won the Empire Marksman title. I was a member of that team, and so I was a really good shot. Really good to be a good shot, but being a good shot's not the only thing you need to be for a good hunter. By his own admission, Paddy is no academic. He left school early, doing a stint at the railways, in the days when it was still steam, and a job which seems quaint now working with Clydesdale horses to retrieve logs from the forest. But he is biding his time to become a government colour like many others. Well, some of them came out of banks, solicitors' offices, accountants, and that's why I felt sorry for them. There's no way they could have held their own fit-wise. They, they were good enough shots and, and they were quite good hunters uh, and things like that, and, and they were good around the camp. But just the, the need for absolute peak fitness was uh, one of the high aims of that uh, course. If they'd known the degree of fitness that was required before they came in, they might have got through because they would have gone out and done a lot of running or maybe gone out and done a lot of climbing. There's nothing like climbing a hill to get you fit and buggered at the same time. <laughs> your tongue hanging out, <laughs> your, your legs aching and I mean sometimes you'd push yourself until you're almost flaking out from exhaustion. Dave Richardson also remembers the range of people trying out at Dip Flat. We had all sorts of different guys. Some guys came in and 
they were fairly overweight, I'd say, and they had all these pocket knives that they'd bought at the uh, sports depot and had them hanging off their belts. You could tell them straight off that they weren't going to last. They were too soft, you can see. But you could also see the guys that had done a bit of work that were fit and wanted to succeed. Some guys going there knew it all too. They'd been out shooting once or twice and they were going to tell you how to do it, you know. And they started telling the field officers, uh, the teachers, you know, what you do, what have you, you know. They didn't last long either. You were there to listen and you were there to do it their way. Hokitika's John Singer. Remember, this is the guy who, while still a youngster, rode 20 miles a night on his bike after school to shoot deer, so was already an experienced hunter. But under the new Forest Service rules, he can't become a colour without attending the course. It was a six weeks course. You went up there the first fortnight, they got you up every morning and you climbed up to the tops and back for fitness training back about lunchtime and in the afternoons they taught you how to pitch a tent and, and cook a feed on a bloody camp oven. They taught you how to cross rivers without drowning yourself and things like that. A lot of good survival stuff. Well I'd lived in the bush and camped on our own for years but a lot of the guys up there they never even knew how to light a fire let alone cook a feed on it. Probably about 20 of us in our intake. And how many of them made it through? Oh, there wouldn't have been many. Be lucky if there was bloody ten at the very outside. A lot of them went through and went deer culling, but most of them never lasted. A lot of them got the sack because they couldn't get anything, you know. They were hopeless. John Singer grew up with the bush as his backyard and hunting second nature. He'll be okay. But for those from the city, it's all new, with no allowances made for inexperience. What all dip-flat attendees I talk to remember most is the infamous and aptly named Gutbuster. A rough trek from the river. 3,000 feet straight up to the tops, above the snow line, which supervisor Jock Fisher remembers almost fondly. We had the, what they call the Gutbuster. At the dip-flat camp, there's a track goes straight up to the tops. Every morning after breakfast, drop their meat. And if you can't meet up in a week within a certain time, you're not going to be any good on this job. It was hard, but it was, it was fair. Paddy Gordon doesn't remember it quite so fondly. We had the gut buster, which was a walk that you did every day with the uh, instructors, and they were super fit. These men, were, that was their job, instructing us. And uh, they had off, and we'd all go after, you know, keep trying to keep up with uh, the lead instructor. I was lucky because of mustering and things like that, so I was used to the hill and I was pretty fit at that stage of my life. But these jokers were fitter than that, and they would virtually try to bust you. And that was a sad thing because some of the jokers were blowing away because of their lack of fitness. They never really understood how fit they had to be. Dave Richardson thinks the gut buster is going to get him thrown off the course. It lived up to its name and um, one day we had a person there called Kerry Marwini. Now Kerry, I thought I had long legs, and big, but Kerry was a lot bigger than me. He said, oh, we're going up the ring buster today. I thought, oh, hell's teeth. Every stride he took was about three of mine. 
we got to the uh, bush edge and here he was way up in the top and we thought he'll say to us oh well you boys go out and pick your wages up and you're 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 gone we got up there and not a word was said so we followed him back home and nothing was said at all those are the sort of things that you, you remember because you know you were taken to your limit all the time and of course there's a lot of emphasis on firearms and marksmanship. Some of the trainees have barely handled a rifle before, and some have never even seen a deer, although Paddy Gordon is not one of them. Uh, they would have deer silhouettes uh, on rollers. They'd have a cable stretched between two or three trees, and they'd push the deer silhouette down along the cable, running at the same speed as the deer would run and you'd be on the range and you'd be firing at that deer, trying to hit it. They had to learn to lead, lead that animal so that it ran into the bullock. One big thing is firearm safety, and with good reason. Firearm safety, you put one foot wrong and you're down the track, because we're the ones that'll cop the bullet. <laughs> so, and firearm safety, has always been a very serious thing under internal affairs. You never walk into a camp with a loaded firearm. You always empty it before and leave the bolt open and stack it there. You don't touch anybody else's firearm. You never walk behind anybody with a bullet up the spout. A bullet up the spout. That means there's a round in the chamber of the rifle. Highly dangerous. You've got no idea how careless some of them were. Dave Richardson sees it with his own eyes. Uh, we went up to Leatham, I think, and he said, oh, are you all ready? Yeah. So he inspected our rifles to see who had one up the spout. And those that had one up the spout, go and get your pack and you're out. You're gone. Because you never, in a group of people, put one up the spout. You had to travel with your bolt open. If, if I didn't see a bolt open, I didn't know whether that rifle was disarmed. Some guys were a bit trigger happy. I always liked to follow them. I didn't like to go in front because I had this rifle pointing at you. Some guys were shot that way, you know. There was the odd accident. Not very many, but there were the odd one. Paddy Gordon, too, takes firearm safety to heart and has it drilled into him forcefully. Terrific firearm safety uh, by the police officer up there. He was just terrific, that man. We all it into my mind as to our firearm safety and his teaching. One day he came in and he says, what's half cocked on a, uh, a 303? And he says, uh, this is half cocked. Half cocked means the rifle isn't on full safety. And he pulled it back to half cock. And some of you think it's perfectly safe. With that he dropped the bloody rifle on the edge of the table and bang! Never had a blank in it and fired. Shit, everybody sat up then. And that is the best training of my life I've ever had. Practical, theory, everything. It was just terrific. And the people running it were just terrific. Never had better training. Firearm safety is so important to Paddy that it later costs him his job. I was on my fourth season when I had a uh, disagreement with one of the head men there that were organising us. This joker, who was our head man, came into our hut with a bolt in his rifle, his magazine in his rifle, and propped it up against the wall. 
I said something to him, I said, that's not what we're trained to do and what we don't do in this area. And he got really shitty with me. Abused me and called me so-and-so. And I thought, I'm not gonna suffer that shit. I knew I was in the right. You know, you don't come into a hut with a, a bolt because not, not. He said it wasn't loaded. Shit, I don't know it's not loaded. You might, but I don't. I want to see an open bolt. I don't want to see a magazine in there. I stuck up for what I believe was right after all the training I'd got by the Forest Service. And this joker, I believe, let us down and let the department down too. And so I just said, I've got something else to do. So I left. Unfortunately, I should have just swallowed my pride a bit. By the 1960s, Colours had been operating throughout New Zealand for 30 years. It's estimated they killed between one and two million deer, all left where they fell on the ground, with just the tails being taken as proof of kill. Now that sounds impressive, and seems to support the legend of the Colours, but appearances can be deceptive. Although Forest Service Colours would carry on for another 15 years, they weren't even close to winning the war. When I left many years ago, we thought we had the deer under control. After 20 years in the game, Jock Fisher is well-placed to comment. We thought at least we were getting the annual increase of deer and keeping at a certain level. When the helicopters arrived, it opened our eyes to the amount of deer that were there that we hadn't seen. We'd been on the tops. You might get a, a few deer, the majority of the deer weren't there. In terms of the effectiveness of the government culling and you know, ground shooters like yourself, was it making any impact on deer numbers in your opinion? What we were doing? Yeah. <laughs> no. This is Hunter Shaw, who we will hear more from later on. He spent far more time than most as a ground shooter and has an eye for the big picture. In a very localised way, yes. In, in an overall sense of deer control, like prior to helicopters, this is just ground hunting. No, no, we we're probably just barely denting the populations, you know, but certainly, you know, a valley here, a valley there. So basically, eradication on its own wasn't working. What really changed the game was a surge in venison sales offshore. Suddenly, meat meant money and there was real incentive for the average guy to pick up a rifle. Max Street was an Auckland accountant who tried out as a colour, but didn't really make a go of it. But his views on the financial realities of the time are worth hearing. Meat shooting was a really good chance for people to make money. If you're an unschooled person, and you're working as a shepherd, or you're working as a shearer, or as working um, for the rabbit ward, you're actually scratching to make ends eat. You needed to go and shoot your own game in order to put food on the table for the kids if you were married and had kids. We also had the uh, delightful habit of drinking almost all that we earned. It was part of the way that the society sort of was. You had those that had the money and then you had those that had the workers and if you supplied the workers with enough booze, they'd do any bloody thing. As the price of venison rises, private hunters, including ex-colours, venture into the hills, ushering in a whole new era. One of them is John Singer. He leaves the Forest Service after a dispute and goes out on his own. 
the meat shooting got going. So we all ended up going meat shooting because you could just, you bought a land over and you just lived at home and went shooting and you could make more money shooting meat than you could get in tails anyway. Morning and night time. Go out for a morning shot and an evening shot. Sometimes you might go out in the daytime and go bush shooting somewhere or something like that if you wanted a deer. Most times you can get enough in the morning and the evening. What sort of money were you getting then for? Oh, it was only about 10 cents a pound in the early days, but that was a lot of money in those days, you know. A deer would, say, be worth 12 or 15 pounds, right? Well, the average guy was going to get that much a week for a whole week, but if you shot one deer, you're almost getting a week's wages for it. Shooting because the prices were, were good, was that attracting a lot of other sort of amateurs and people into the game as well? Well, most guys around Hokitika area here had a rifle and after work at night in the summertime they'd go out and see if they could shoot a deer. Because if they shot one deer during the week they'd almost double their wages and they could buy something, buy some clothes or a bit more tucker or something for the kids. The venison industry made this place because all the money was all spent around the town. Not only here, it was the same everywhere. And where was the meat going to, do you know John? Germany in those days, most of it. Kiwis take to the hills in their hundreds, using horses, light planes, jet boats, tractors, land rovers, private cars and trucks. Anything that can carry a carcass is pressed into service. That's all well and good, but you still need the muscle to get the animals out to a pickup point. Evan Wabey, a ground hunter, remembers bumping into a friend, Billy Haywood, in one of the valleys. Here he was, heading up the flat with this big stag on his back, see, and got on, how you going, Bill? He turned in, and he just kept going, and I said, give you a spell. No, no, I'm right, I'm right. Carried on, and I said, come on, I'll give you a break. Said, All right, so he dropped it on the ground. Well, crikey, dick. I just managed to get the thing up off the ground, oh, and he went for about three chains. I said, oh, bugger this, I wouldn't. Dropped it and he picked it up and away he went. It must have weighed 200 pounds. It was a mammoth bloody thing. Because I could carry a bit of weight, but oh, I never had a hope. I've met Billy Haywood, an excellent hunter who later became a guide. But he is short and wiry. No Hercules to carry a 200 pound deer down one of our long East Coast River valleys. But driven by money, he managed it. While there were lots of weekend warriors or part-time hunters, serious shooters were very organised and it became their living, not just a pastime. I was born in Auckland and um, my mum and dad came down to the South Island for a holiday. They got down as far as Manapuri. This is Hunter Shaw, whose family would soon make a permanent move south they just loved it. Lincoln went back to Auckland and sold up. My dad had a taxi business, I think it was there at the time, and they sold the house, bought a truck, and threw my brother and I in the back in a bit of gear and, and trundled off back down. That was about 1950. With a name like Hunter Shaw, he was never going to drive a taxi for a living, and he's soon at home in his new environment. The norm was that you had generally an open fire. 
Manicole range for cooking Antilly lamps or, or that equivalent, you know. No power, obviously, no national grid power here. Yeah, it was very different, but very exciting way of life for a young fella. Coming down into this wonderland of, you know, pigs and deer and trout and eels. I guess that was the catalyst for my interest, well, what evolved later in life into venison recovery, you know. Sure enough, a few years after leaving school, Hunter buys a couple of horses and cuts a track into the home valley at the back of Teanau. He rebuilds an old hut he finds and sets about making his living as a venison hunter, but in very different conditions to the early colours. As people often used to, but imagine that you lived in a little mouldy cave, you know, with a, a lukewarm fire going. I lived in a hut in a log cabin, warm, dry, big open fire. I had all the wood always stacked in there, from backlogs down to kindling, so no matter what the weather was doing, I could come in, I could have a fire going in five minutes, dry manuka brush, you know. And if I had a, a gas hob for cooking, I had a camp oven. People say, what would you eat? I say, exactly the same at home roasts. Weight was no problem. I'd take in a bag of potatoes with the horses, not just a little paper bag, take a whole bag full and you could take in a half side of mutton. You take in what you want. I ate more or less what eat at home. Lived very well. With a secure base and the valley virtually all to himself, Hunter's got a very settled and profitable hunting routine. I would go out mornings and evenings, as we all did, generally speaking. So you'd be working, you know, three or four hours in the morning or whatever, and perhaps slightly less in the evening. Right after daylight was productive time. Uh, middle of the day, generally speaking, not so productive. The latter part of the uh, evening, you know, right until it was too dark to shoot, that was the way, you know, that I'd be working. I would be shooting animals individually, you know, one, two, three sometimes, whatever it was because where I was working was in the bush primarily, smaller clearings, so even if there was half a dozen animals, as quite often there was early days, you know, you might only get, you know, one or two or three, you know, sometimes more if you're lucky. But as often as not, if there was a group of deer, you would just get a small number of them and, and they were gone, you know, that was just the nature of the terrain. I had a pack frame. Some guys liked using frames, others hated them. You know, they're a bit of a disadvantage when you're actually hunting because you can tend to get hooked up in vines and stuff like that. But, but I, personally, I always thought the advantages of having a pack frame, for me, outweighed the disadvantages, the ease of carrying it, you know. You know, you cut the animal, I tie it into the pack frame and then just physically carry it back to my hut. Then I had a safe at the hut, you know, you could hang 15 or 20 animals up in a safe, fly-proof, so they were kept in really good condition there. The safe was just in under the trees in the bush, so always, even on a warm day, it was generally in shade. Then when I was coming out, I had three horses, so I would just uh, load the horses up with the animals and uh, lead them down. I had a good track down to my boat at Hope Arm, which was about an hour and a half. So, uh, you know, you could take eight or ten animals 
down on the horses, you know, just, just in a block out of my boat. I mean, it was amazing. Occasionally, yes, I had floods, and occasionally the horses were swimming, which was interesting, because I crossed uh, sort of on one bend of the river on the uphill side, and I had to get to the bend on the slightly downhill crossing, and I always did, if I missed that, it would have been very, very difficult. I could well have lost the horses, I'm sure, because the banks were steep. There was strewn with logs everywhere, but I never did miss that crossing, thank goodness. <laughs> How long were you in the valley for, in the bed? Um, over 20 years. 20 years? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you were meat hunting all that, all that time? Yeah, full, absolutely. It was just a great way of life. For me, that was foremost, I guess. It was a great way of life. I mean, I never became a millionaire, but that didn't worry me. With so many deer on offer and a lucrative market, it doesn't take long for the hunters to go big. Remember Dick Deeker, 17 years old, hot water bottle, Christmas cake? He's an early one to take the plunge and move beyond just bringing single carcasses out. I was brought up North East Valley, Dunedin. I was the oldest of a family of six. And every weekend my mother would always want um, about six rabbits to eat. So it was my job to get them. And I, and I used to trap possums too. I used to get a bounty in two and six, a skin. You know, I was always keen on hunting. I was hopeless at school. I went to Tyree High School. But I only went there to eat my lunch. And uh, I never actually learned a hell of a lot. Like I um, was always bottom of the class and everything. All I wanted to do was fly and um, hunting deer. Dick goes shooting for four years before buying his own plane. Well, by the time I was 21, I made a few pounds in the bank and uh, I got a private pilot licence and a Cessna 172 was five pound. That's fueling all up, you see. Of course, I used to get two pound a deer. I rushed it through in a few months, got my private pilot licence and I bought this Tiger Moth. And I bought it in Invercargill, and I got it up to Tyree. My mother and father were there, and my brother. That's in the days when they had, would have had an Austin A55, I think it was at the time. And I got out of this thing there, and they took a photo of me. My mother, she wouldn't look me in the eye. She was looking at the ground, and she said, Richard, you'll be dead in a week. And I really thought about that. I still remember Asana, and it was uh, actually quite moving. You know, I hadn't been away from home more than a year or year and a half. When your mother says you're going to be dead in a week, you got to sit up and take notice, you know, like, maybe they're right, but I was going to prove her wrong. Greymouth-born Bruce Dando always seemed destined to fly and to shoot deer. I was at school, and my brother-in-law... He was mad on hunting and I went out a few times with him, but I, you know, I was only 13 or 14 in those days. I bought an old 303 when I was about 16. Brought a old motorbike and used to go out hunting, um, shooting possums. And in the mid-60s, with venison prices high and fuel prices low, he was the right man, or rather boy, in the right place at the right time. Yeah, and then a friend of mine had an aeroplane in Greymouth and that and he was carting deer out for the ground shooters down south of here, Harst and Kangaroo and all around there. So he took me for a fly one day when I was 15 and I thought, well, I'd love to do this myself. So, yeah, I got into it. 
I got my private pilot license when I was 16, brought an aeroplane, a Piper Cub when I was 18, and then got into shooting deer. It was all very well to have a pilot's license and a plane, but what was needed was bush strips to land on and fly the carcasses out. In typical Kiwi fashion, hunters walked into the valleys with pickaxes and shovels. They built rough strips of pretty questionable quality. In many cases, pilots just landed on the gravel of a riverbed. A lot of the valleys I'd been in when I was younger, going to these places you'd think, oh shit, I can't land here now, but if you had a real good wind blowing, like, you know, 20 or 30 knot wind where you can land into the wind, you can just be like a blimmin' helicopter, just hover in and touch down and get out with your shovel and your grubber and whatever and clear another 150 yards. I mean, the old cub, they could get off and, you know, you only need 150 yards sometimes and a couple of deer in the back. As I often found when talking to these pilots, Bruce totally underplays the bodgy and often dangerous nature of these homemade strips. I've flown into a couple and seen lots of others on my longer tramps. I wouldn't even ride a bike on these strips, let alone land a plane. Some had dog legs, others you had to land on riverbeds or dodge fallen trees on takeoff. They're absolutely not for the faint-hearted. One in the Taipo River was quite a big job putting that in because they had to cut a lot of trees down one end of it because it was a one-way airstrip. And we had the land going upriver. A lot of the times, if you wanted to take a decent load of meat out of there, you need a bit of wind blowing. So that was quite interesting, I can tell you. Dick Deeker has by now sold his tiger moth and bought a more suitable Piper Cub. He gets pretty good at using these remote bush strips until impatience gets the better of him. It was calm early in the morning. I put the four deer in and my brother said, it was about 120 metres long, I guess. And I knew when I was halfway down the airstrip, it was too late to stop. It was a big ditch at the other end, you know. And I thought, I'll just keep going. And I, I went the full length of the airstrip and I pulled on, on, on flap and it, and it sort of flew for about 10 metres across this ditch and just plunged into the ground the other side. And uh, I did a lot of damage to it. I didn't have it insured. It cost me about two or three thousand dollars then to fix it. So that was a bit of a knock, and yeah, you know, I had to shoot quite a few more deer then to pay for all that. But I got a just bad judgment, I guess. But about an hour after that happened, the wind came up to about ten knots of wind coming up the valley. I would have got away piece of piss if I just hadn't have been so impatient to get out of the place. So it taught me another bloody lesson, you know. Don't be in a hurry, you know. Have a think about it. Accidents happened, but not as often as you might think. When they did, it was due to a mixture of rough-as-guts airstrips and the hunters stuffing as many deer as they could into the plane. Pipe a cab that I had, but you could actually put them into tighter place and land and take back off, you know, with four, maybe five deer in it, depending on the weight. The price of venison overnight went to a dollar a pound, and man, she was all on then. Every man his dog was buying aeroplane. It was good, you know, and it, it didn't last that long. It sort of, there was a lot of rules came in that um, you weren't allowed to use fly spray anymore on the carcasses to kill the, you know. <laughs> so 
So we found the one that didn't smell at all, so that was quite good for about a year. With no supervision, it's tempting to cut corners. And in the early days of venison recovery, many do. Jock Fisher laughs about two incidents that would send today's health inspectors into cardiac arrest. And what happened was that I went in with the pilot. The pilot said, well, I've got to pick up some carcasses. <laughs> we went in there and we landed on the beach. And there's the carcasses. I said, cracky, you're not going to bloody well take those back. He said, yes, I am. They were shot about 10 days ago. The shooter gutted them and put them in the creek to stop the, stop the flies from blowing them. And they pulled them out yesterday and he's left them on the beach to dry out. I said, well, I'm not sitting on top of the bloody things. <laughs> so anyway, I helped them load them onto uh, there, and he flew them down to where the, the truck was to pick them up, and then he came back and picked me up. I've still got that photograph, and I showed it to the pilot, who might have been a year back. I said, do you remember that? He says, I remember that. He says, I'm glad you didn't get the aeroplane in the photograph. <laughs> That's the first story. The second is even worse. When I was in Queenstown, there was a, I got a phone call one day and there was this chap from the Department of Ag had come down from Auckland and he said, oh, I'm a meat inspector. I've come down to look at these venison uh, factories. He says, do you know them? I said, oh, of course I do. I know them all around here. He says, well, well is there any chance of you taking me around to show them? And he says, well, I want to see how the meat's processed. He says, because we've got a report on it. <laughs> we went to the um, place where they were operating and we walked in there, and as we walked in there, there was a whole pile of empty spray cans lying there. <laughs> we walked in there, and there was all this venison lying on the benches, and the Duke was cutting it up. There were maggots everywhere. They were hosing them out and hosing them off. <laughs> his eyes popped out of his head. <laughs> so I, I, took, I took him around and showed him these different areas, and they were all the same. In case you haven't figured it out, it's all pretty free and easy during this period. The venison boom carries on for a number of years, but there are big changes in the air which no one sees coming. Oh, it was just so exciting. This has got to be the only way to go, you know. I heard it coming in a matter of minutes, and I thought, geez, it would be amazing to have one of them. A lot easier, we just shot them out of the helicopter. So we talked on into taking the door off. The days of ground slog are over. He pulled me up and says, you'd better come across and see what we're doing here. He says, we're shooting from the helicopter. And, Jesus, it's working. Roughly 210 deers hit the deck in 20 minutes. That was it. We're never, ever going to shoot from the ground again. But dangerous times are ahead as hunters take to the air. They took lots of risks. Terrifying. My feet bounced with nerves on the pedals. You know? <laughs> Reckless years that anyone who lived through them will never forget. It was a very worrying time. When he put the power on to go forwards, he just crashed. The helicopter was right off. That's next time on Deer Wars. Deer Wars is written and presented by me, Paul Roy. It's engineered by Alex Harmer. 
The executive producers are Katie Gossett, Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.